You're listening to Marks of a Healthy Church, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So prayer is the subject we will once again be addressing in our series on the Marks of a Healthy Church. And last two weeks ago, so last time we were in prayer, we let Charles Spurgeon introduce us, direct our thoughts toward the topic of prayer and how vital it is in the life of the church. And I thought this week we'd begin by letting another preacher, writer, Bible commentator, author, John Stott, kind of direct our thoughts toward the subject of prayer. And so here's a couple of quotes, a couple of things that John Stott has said. I don't know if you know John Stott. He, he passed away, I think, eight years ago now. Um, but he was a great writer. If you get a chance to read one of his books, great, great author. And he said, Prayer is the very way God himself has chosen for us to express our conscious need of him and our humble dependence upon him. Okay? So it's through prayer that we show how much we need God and depend on him. He said, Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating subordinating our will to his. I think that's actually a really helpful thing when we think about how we pray. That we don't go to prayer because we want to change God's will. Right? We don't go, we don't go to prayer and say, God, I know this is how, you know, I know you work through suffering and but I don't ever want suffering. Right? I mean, we want to pray that way, don't we? But that's not what it's about. What we pray when we go to God is to help us bend our will to his. Right? And so that's a really helpful thought in prayer. He said, God must speak to us before we have any liberty to speak to him. He must disclose to us who he is before we can offer him what we are, what we are in acceptable worship. The worship of God is always a response to the word of God. Scripture wonderfully directs and enriches our worship. And again, I think that's really helpful to realize that uh, in order to pray well, to pray properly, we need to be directed by the Word of God, right? It's always spirit and truth. It's always with the right attitude, with the right heart, with the right intention and motivation, as much as we possibly can in our sinful selves, coming to God honestly and openly. But it's also allowing the Bible to direct us and teach us how to pray so that we can pray better. Right? So we pray more in line with God's will and God's character. So I want to, to, to um, read a prayer that John Stott prayed, I guess, every morning when he woke up. Uh, he prayed this prayer. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's called the Trinitarian Prayer of John Stott. He said, Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. 
Almighty God, creator and sustainer of the universe, I worship you. Lord Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord of the world, I worship you. Holy Spirit, sanctifier of the people of God, I worship you. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall forever be. Amen. That was a great, great prayer. Good way to start your day. So two weeks ago, we walked through the faith-filled prayers of a woman named Hannah. If you remember the story of Hannah, she was this woman who was barren and she was desperate. She has been tormented by her sister wife for quite a while over the fact she couldn't have kids and, and she had her own you know, herd going on. And so she was broken and weeping. She was at the point where she could not eat. She was so depressed. And she pours out her heart before God. And in that prayer, we see the praise of God, right? Lord of hosts. We see her pouring out her need, her desire, but she does it with such humility, right? She's the servant of God. We see the faith in the prayer that she knows that that this is all God, that God can do it all. And we see her willingness to, to trust God in that she says that, God, if you give me a child, I will give it back to you. He will be yours for your service. And so um, she leaves that prayer. And despite the desperation she came with, um, she was able to get up and her countenance changed. She was no longer sad. And she went out and she ate. And that's a little thing, right? It's, you know, what, what's a big deal? She went out and had a meal. But this is a woman who was so broken. And, and by pouring out her heart to God and trusting him, it was able to change the way she felt, the way, the, where she was at in her mind at the time. And prayer is an amazing thing because of how it can change us. And so Hannah prays this prayer and nine, ten months later, uh, she is giving birth. She has a baby boy. And God has answered her prayer. A few years after that, she brings that boy, dedicates him to God at the temple, or not the temple, but to the high priest, uh, and gives him up. I mean, this is not just like, uh, I'm dedicating, you know, we dedicate our kids to the Lord, meaning like I'm going to try and raise them in the Lord. No, this is like I'm, I'm giving him to God. I'm going to see him once a year, right, when I come visit the high priest and do sacrifices. And so she gives the child to God, and then she prays one of the most glorious prayers in all of Scripture. It is so doctrinally rich, so praise-filled. She comes to God with such humility and so much reverence for who he is. And so if, if you want to know a prayer that's good to pray, look up uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, because it's an amazing prayer. So we looked at her prayer last week. We learned that our prayers should come from the heart, that praying should be approached with humility, reverence, and truth, or in faith, sorry, and that our prayers should be full of doctrinally rich praise. But above and beyond all of those things that we learned from Hannah, we learned that God is a God who is faithful to his children. And when we come to him that way, right, when we come to him with reverence, but also our own humility, when we come to him in faith, he doesn't cast us aside. He doesn't, he doesn't throw us away. He doesn't tell us to leave. He doesn't, no, God is faithful to his children and he answers our prayers. And so Nehemiah, or Hannah taught us to pray in desperate situations. And this morning, I want to begin looking at Nehemiah because Nehemiah teaches how to pray as we're in the battle. 
And what I mean by that is how to pray while we're in the midst of trying to do what God wants us to do in our lives. Because the truth is, even though Nehemiah's battle is very different from the one that you face, I don't think anybody here has been called to go build a wall somewhere, right? No walls being built around Chatham Kent. We don't need those anymore. Um, <laughs> Trump has been called to build a wall, right? <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I'm guessing none of you are going to go help. I'm hoping. So um, here, this is a battle, right? It's, it's, a, it's a task that God has called Nehemiah to, but we got to realize that as a Christian, we are also in a battle, right? We're called to be doing the will of God. And so it's not crazy for us to be able to say, you know what? Nehemiah was called to this task. He was doing what God wanted us to do. And, and this is how he treated prayer in the midst of that. This is how he relied on God. And this is when he turned to God and to say, okay, in my own life, in whatever, whatever I'm facing, how can I be like Nehemiah in the way I pray? Because Nehemiah is an amazing example for us. If the Old Testament were ordered chronologically, Nehemiah would be the second to last book, right? So, so closest to, almost closest to the life of Jesus, about 445 years or so before Jesus came on the scene. Uh, it's a relatively short book, 13 chapters, and there are 11 prayers recorded within those 13 chapters. One of those prayers is the longest prayer in the whole Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9. I don't think we'll get to it today, though. And so what I want to do is I want to work our way kind of through the prayers of Nehemiah. The, the first is going to be the second longest, and so we'll spend a little bit more time at the first one. But I want to look, work our way through these prayers and, and learn what circumstance Nehemiah was in and then in what way he prayed to God. Okay, I hope it's helpful because you realize that not all of your prayers are the same. If we understand the idea of praying without ceasing, being that it's not just one time a day that I go to God in prayer and then I'm done for the day, but it's a continual thing, it can't always look like it does when you're at 6 o'clock in the morning praying by yourself or at 10 o'clock at night praying by yourself. It's, it's not like that throughout the day. So the first prayer, okay, let's get to the story. This is Nehemiah's situation. Nehemiah chapter 1. He, the, the book begins with Nehemiah meeting with his brother who has just come from Jerusalem. About 10 years prior, Ezra has gone to Jerusalem and he reestablished some of the sacrifices and some of the good things that were happening in the temple. So 50 years or, or so before that, Zerubbabel had gone back, helped build the temple. The problem was when Ezra came along that there was a temple built, but there was nothing going on, right? The spiritual life of Israel was still dead. And so Ezra kind of reinvigorated that and there was readings of scripture. There's some wonderful things that happened. And so when Nehemiah's brother comes from Jerusalem, he asks the question, hey, how's it going in Jerusalem? Kind of hoping for, oh, you know, things are great. You know, the, the, te- the worship is awesome and you should go there and you'd have a great time. This is the answer he gets when he says, hey, how are things in Jerusalem? The remnant that are left, there's <laughs> not many left. There's a few. The remnant that are left, of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Okay. How's things going? Hoping for, you know, good news. 
There's a few left. They're in a lot of trouble. I mean, they're in a bad state. The idea of reproach there is they're shamed or humiliated. These people are kind of the joke of all the nations around them. right? They've got a city, but they've got no walls. They've got no barriers, no protection. Anybody can come in anytime they want and take whatever they want. Nobody has any respect for the Jews. They have, they have no type of self-defense system at all. And so they're a joke. The only people left there are the ones that are so poor that there's nothing else to take. And so they're in a really, really bad state back in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah shrugs it off and pays no attention because he's in a good spot. <laughs> no, that's not what he does. But it is what a lot of people would do. Nehemiah is broken by this. And so in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, it says, It came to pass when I heard those words, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned certain days and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Okay, now this is the prayer. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and the terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Okay, so I, I want you to help me because I, I, I'm trying to make an effort to get more class participation today. And so I want you to help me. When you read that prayer, what do you notice? Okay, do you want me to pray? You want me to, to say it again so that you're paying attention this time? Ready? <laughs> I know, I should have said before. I was going to ask you a question, okay? I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, great and terrible God, that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. What do you notice in his introduction? What's there? I mean, point out the obvious if you want to. Reverence. Reverence. Good. God's commitment to his people. God's commitment to his people. Right. Keeps his covenant and mercy. The greatness of God. The greatness of God. Humility. Humility. Yeah. I think you're going to see even more of that in a second. But Absolutely. I mean, he goes to God and you don't get the sense that it's casual, right? He's weeping, he's fasting, he's broken, he's desperate, and he looks up to heaven and he, he exalts God, that he's the God of heaven, the great and the terrible God. Okay, the God that's worth fearing, that we should revere. That's the idea of, of being terrible, the mighty and, and the fearful God that Keeps his covenant. He, he talks about his character, right? You're a good God. You don't change. You, you are good to your people. You have mercy on those that observe his commandments. And he goes and he continues. Verse 6, Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servants. And I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments or the statutes or the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. What do you notice there? Yeah. He is confessing not only his sins, but the sins of Israel. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's really important to realize because Nehemiah, he wasn't alive when, or he likely wasn't alive 
when they were taken into captivity, right? So we're like 60 years, 70 years past that. So, so what's the deal? Why is, actually, we're a lot longer than that. We're 70 years past the time that the Babylonians were gone, right? So why is he confessing sin as though it's his fault? Well, he confesses Israel's sin, and a lot of people would stop there. Lord, my ancestors were so bad. Israel of the past, they were awful. But he doesn't stop there. He knows that the problem isn't just with them, it's with him. It's with his heart, with his family, right? And so maybe there's a lesson in that. Maybe we should learn to stop thinking so much about like everybody else's sin and the world's sin and how, you know, our country's in problems because of how sin... Yeah, okay, sure. But maybe the important thing is our sin. Maybe that's the thing that God wants. That's the confession that God wants to hear. And so he begins with corporate and that's important, right? And I think even as as a church, praying corporately and confessing our sin is a good deal. But I also think it's got to be personal. We've got to recognize our role in all of that. If anybody had the right to say, it's not my fault, it's Nehemiah, who's the king's cupbearer, really far away, not in Jerusalem, not a part of that. He's just doing his thing there. And yet he owns his sin. We ought to too. Um, Anything else you notice? The first few verses, I think, just kind of describe a little bit of the way he comes and that idea of of humility yeah um it is kind of his fault though too because he's in babylon yep and if zion is important yeah then he'd have been there already Mm. you know that's a good point so maybe he's seeing that in himself yeah yeah that's a great point yeah that that if israel had the opportunity if there's a jew living somewhere and they had the opportunity to go back they should have yeah, they were no longer in like the same kind of captivity, right? They were still like controlled ultimately, but it wasn't the Babylonian captivity. And you'll you'll see the freedom that, that he's offered. So you're right. Good. Anything else you notice? I think that like he, he seems to be begging God, pleading with God, right? There's just like so much faith, but so much need that he's pouring out there. And I wonder sometimes if we don't go to God that way, because we're afraid he's not going to listen. And if he doesn't listen and we've really poured ourselves out, like we've really put all of our eggs in that basket, then we're in trouble. But isn't that like the most beautiful prayer when somebody does actually put it all on God? Like, like they're not like, Lord, I'm going to do this, but I need a little bit of your help. It's like, God, you have to do all that because it's impossible for me. Right? I, I can't do it. I'm begging you to help. I feel like too, we're afraid to... We're afraid that our faith, like, there's a part of us that fears that he won't actually answer, and yeah. therefore our faith will be, will take a toll, yeah. and we don't actually want to lose our faith, even if it's small as it should be. Yeah, I think that that's exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah, I think, do you, do you ever sense that when you're praying, that you're like, you want to ask God for help in something, but you are a little bit fra- afraid if you put too much on God, he might prove incapable of helping or not incapable but like that he doesn't want to help you um and so then you know what i do you know what i'm saying we sort of have to give him a way out yeah that's a that's it like okay i'll pray this but you probably won't anyway so right and if if we know do you know what like i've played so many um athletic events with people who they don't think they're very good 
And as long as they don't try too hard, it's okay. Right? But as soon as they try hard, that means that when they mess up, they're, it's because they're not that good. But the problem is they do, like, they're never good when they don't try hard. It's not like they're getting better or, like, helping with the team at all. They're just giving themselves a way out. <laughs> I was just joking. So, it, you know, the fact that I sucked, it's not a big deal. Right? Yeah. Okay. It's so frustrating when it's your teammate. Um, it's also that the Spirit will give you the right state of mind and the side thoughts to pray for what you need. Yeah. 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 I mean, depending on the, on the Spirit in, in our prayers is essential too. So, and um, I, mean, I think we see that just in, the, in how, how so many of these people who, are, who seem close to God, their prayers resemble one another. That's the way that the Spirit's leading. Yeah. Okay, so if we if we go to God and just lean on Him fully, then maybe the answer will be different. He will give it to us. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean we we know that to be true, right? Yeah. I'm just thinking about when Jesus says, you know, if you pray anything, um, my Father's will. Well, he doesn't even say that. He says, I will do it. Yeah. Really. So when we pray things, um, sometimes we, I think there is that fear that well, if he doesn't answer, then yeah. really what's happening, that question, right? Right. But I think the perspective, knowing that God is, knows the story from the beginning to the end. Yeah. And sometimes he has to use a process to accomplish the thing. So to have the confidence that he gives us those things that we're asking, even when the circumstances clearly look the opposite, yep. to still trust him yep. that he's doing what we ask. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, that that's incredibly important. And um, there's like, sometimes we, we maybe, maybe there's a sense that sometimes we pray for things that aren't in line with God's will. And then he doesn't answer us, and we think, well, God doesn't always answer prayer. And that hinders us from, from praying really like fully all in, in the future because we're just not sure if God really answers prayer. But do you notice that the prayers that he's praying, the way he's pleading with God, he's pleading for God's will. Like God wants Israel to be restored. He wants Israel to repent. He wants the wall to be rebuilt. He wants the... the and so in all of these things, he's praying along the lines of God's will. And if we, if we, we should come to God full of faith when we know what we're praying is in line with God's will. Right? I think he's also acknowledging that they went into captivity because of their sin and that's how they got into it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And he, that, that thought continues too in the next, next few verses. Yep. Jared. Yeah, that point that you've made about you know, praying in God's will we have promises from him that we know those are the kind of prayers we're praying. Yeah. Because then we're assured of that. Yep. This is what God has said he will do for his people and right. his, his desire. And when we're in line with that, I think it does give us a tremendous confidence. No matter what the timing is, mm-hmm. we can know that this is what he has promised. And so I'm coming to you, not with my own ideas, but these are yours, God. Yep. And you see that how many times in these prayers that they always refer back to God's covenant. You said this. Yes. This is on you. Yep. And I think that really aids us to say, God, you know, I'm not sure what I'm doing here, but this is what you said. Right. And I think that helps us. Uh, hugely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think timing, you know, sometimes like the DMF, it took a long time for him to, 
you know, work through the process there before the king and, and, and finally get there. And then he had right. to build a wall. And he could have, at any point, he could have said, God's not answering my prayer. Oh, for sure. At any point. I know. We get to read the stories as like one chapter and the next chapter happens right away. But we don't realize that like there, there is time between these things. And I, I think before he even went to the king, we always think like chapter two, chapter one, then chapter two. It's like four or five months between chapter one and chapter two. So four or five months, he's praying this prayer and he's still sad four or five months later to the point that the king notices, right? God loved his people. They kept going astray, going astray. Then they cried out to him. He always mm-hmm. answered those prayers. And then he picked them up and they go astray. And then yep. when they got in a real big mess, they cried out to him. He was always there for his people. Yep. Yep. Maybe one of the good things that we could do would be just to go home and write a list of the things that we know God wants. Like this is God, we know this is God's will. So this is something that I can pray in full assurance that I'm praying along with God's will in, for our lives, for the lives of people that we love, for our church's life, for our nation. Like those, we could pray some of those things with full confidence if we knew that that, that was a promise from God or, or the will of God. Two thoughts just real quick, because you want discussion, right? Yeah. Um, so, love it. Um, but what about this four-month period? He prayed this daily. Yeah. And I think that's huge to understand. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about praying God's will for our people. I think one thing that we, we know but we don't pray enough is that Christ be formed in us. Yep. And, and that's one of those prayers that God will answer. And yep. we hardly ever pray for it. Yep. We have a list of things. And then the most important thing, that we be transformed to the image of the Son, which He's going to do. He's going to complete that. We just sort of don't pray for that. Yep. It's like that, but we ought to be. Yep. And I think when we're praying out loud like that, that's in our mind too. Yeah. And, and so it, it all sort of works together in the sanctification process. Yep. Yeah, we get we get so down on ourselves because we're not growing like we should be. And I think it hinders our prayer rather than realizing that we can't grow like we're supposed to be all by ourselves. And but one of one of the promises we can cling to is that God will do the work of sanctification in our lives. And so praying that God will help us overcome whatever we're struggling with. Sam. <laughs> Because we know that God ultimately wants us to become more like Him. Sometimes praying means that we're asking Him to allow um, heart, heart, heartache into our lives. Yeah. That's really hard. Yeah, I'm not going to do that one. <laughs> we don't pray for, for that. Yeah. But we pray for His will to be done, and sometimes that's, that is what we're praying for. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. And that's, that's rough. That's hard. But that's part of like the trusting His character that whatever that, whatever that means for us, our growth is good. Uh, so verse number six, Pastor, you mentioned that he he's praying it often. Remember, this is likely Nehemiah that's writing these words down. And so Nehemiah says, hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night. Right. So he's, pro- he's, he's summarizing the prayer that he's prayed day and night for Israel for probably four months or five months now. <clears throat> verse number eight. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Okay, I think, I think what he's saying here has already been pointed out, but do you notice that he, he says, <clears throat> us being scattered, the situation that we're in, the destruction and the decimation of Israel and the terrible state, the shame that we're experiencing right now, you promise that in your word. You promised that if, you, if we disobeyed you and we continued to, to turn our backs against you, this is what you would do. So this is just. He's not going to God complaining about this, his situation because, you know, this isn't fair and we're your people and come on, God, what's going on? Shouldn't you be, 
doing all this stuff for us. He's, he's going and saying, God, you're right. This is right. I should be in this awful state because we have broken your law. Then verse 9, he says, but if you turn unto me, so this is, this is something that God was still saying. Okay, this is part of the promise that he's clinging to. You promise to judge us. But if you turn to me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet I will gather them from thence and I will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. What do you think the place he's talking about right now is? Jerusalem. Right. So you promised this, God, that you would judge us and you promised that if we would turn to you and humbly try and keep your commandments that you would gather us together back to your place. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. So what do you notice there? He's claiming the covenant God has made, both good and bad. Yes, absolutely. He's claiming the covenant. When he is asking God for this amazing miracle that somehow God is going to, to gather the people of God together and bring them back to Jerusalem. What is he appealing to? Did Solomon not pray that, that if they were cast away, that when they looked yep. toward Jerusalem and confessed their sin and prayed, yep. God would bring them? Yeah, and, and it's not just Solomon. It's actually like so often throughout the Old Testament that almost exactly that prayer that promise is made. Um, yeah, if my people are called by my name, shall harm themselves and um, how's it go? Shall how's that verse go? Seek my face and turn from the wicked ways. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that promise is so often throughout the Old Testament that if if God's people will be humble and turn back to Him, then He'll lift them back up. He'll bring them back together. <clears throat> and so he is not claiming that Israel is good or deserving or anything like that. Right? There's no appeal to how awesome they are. It's, it's completely an appeal to God's grace, God's mercy. God, you said, if we'd be humble, you'd, be, you'd show mercy. And so he's asking God for mercy. <clears throat> Verse number 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cup bearer. Okay? What do you notice there at the end? It's the conclusion of his prayer. What, what does he, what, how does he conclude? He's humble, humble? yep. Ask for mercy. Yeah. <clears throat> you notice the, the desire he states. God, we truly desire to do your will. We want to honor your name. Right? I think that's a really important part of, of his prayer and the way that Israel, or Nehemiah approaches this whole thing. You never get the sense that, that there's anything other than a, a real desire for God to be glorified. It's, it's never about him. It's never about his situation or, or even the pain of other people. It's really even more so about God and God's promises and God's glory. And so that's his desire. We desire to fear thy name. And then, and then the very last thing he says 
it moves it from God do this somehow. Right? Do, do this far away from me. Lift somebody else up. Do something awesome in that place while I am back here. He says, grant him, his servant, Nehemiah, grant me mercy in the sight of this man for I am the king's cupbearer. In other words, the end of the prayer is, I know I got to do something, God, and so help me. Grant me mercy in the sight of the the cupbearer. And remember, this is a prayer that he prayed for a long time, for four or five months before he finally was able to talk to the king. So he's been praying this prayer, God, grant mercy when I meet this guy, right? So here's the first prayer. Yeah, he's waiting on the Lord's timing in this. Yeah. He wants to help. He thinks he can help and everything else. But he's not going to do it unless it's in the Lord's timing because he's a... Him, I can't do this unless you yep. do something about it because I'm stuck in my Absolutely. And that's that's so key because I think sometimes we hear about bad news and we have this like knee-jerk reaction to fix it, right? We're like impassioned against the injustice that we see. And so we want to immediately do something about it. We want to right away fix the problem. But what he's doing is he's saying... God, I'm, I'm broken by this. I want to fix it. I want to do something. I can't do it by myself. For four months, he's praying a prayer that says, God, I need you to do something because I, I, I can't fix it even if I tried. There's nothing I could do without you. And so you're right. Praying and waiting on God's timing, I think is really important too. So that's how to pray before the work begins. Let's look really quickly at prayer number two. How to pray in the heat of a life or death situation. Okay, so if you have one of those, you'll know what to do. Uh, so four months from now, Nehemiah is still praying this prayer in chapter one. He's serving the king, but he is still very sad. So King Artaxerxes asks, why? Nehemiah, what's wrong? Why is your countenance so sad? And I'm sure that Artaxerxes expected Nehemiah to perk right up and say, oh, no, I'm good. I'm awesome. What do you mean? King, I would never be sad in your presence. You might kill me for that. (laughs) And so, but that's not what Nehemiah says. He says, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? In other words, how could I not be sad? How, How could I be anything other than the way I am? When the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lies in waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. God, how, how, God, King, how could I how could I be joyful and happy when when Jerusalem is in the state that it's in? He's so like moved by what he knows God's will is that it's impacting every moment of his day. And he even has the boldness to finally speak to the king. Why do you think he had that kind of boldness? Because he'd been praying for four months. And so the king says unto him in verse 4, well, what's your request? What's your request? I mean, this is crazy. The king actually listened to him. The king didn't kill him, didn't send him away and get a new guy, new cupbearer. He listened to him and he said, okay, well, what do you want? And so this is where you really get scared because like, there's no way. 
I mean, there's no way he's gonna just like let me qu- quit, take like a, a hugely extended vacation and leave and go help. There's no way he's gonna do any of that because he's the king. Why does he care about what's going on in Jerusalem? Not at all. And so what does he do? The end of verse four. So I prayed to the God of heaven. We don't even know what he said. But what do you do when you're in the heat of a life or death situation? He, he gets this question and somehow before he answers it, it says he prayed to the God of heaven. I think that's so, it's so good. In the middle of this awful circumstances, he takes, and I don't think he probably was like, okay, hold on. Okay. I think he probably like, God help me, God help me. I need you right now. Um, and then, and then he gave the answer. And his answer was, I need, I need to go. I need to go back there. I need to help build the wall. Like, I need to do something about, I need to help somehow. And King Artaxerxes, do you know what he does? He doesn't just say yes. The, the, the preacher actually this week was talking about this story and it sucked because I've, I preached through Nehemiah with our teenagers a few months back and like he did everything I did in, in a matter of months in like 40 minutes. So, <laughs> 50 minutes. But the way he said it is the king gave him his credit card. He said, what do you need? Oh, you, you need lumber, you need servants, you need metal. Like what, what do you need? Here it is. Just take whatever you want and go do what you need to do Take as long as you want. Right? That's a crazy thing. Like this is this is a pagan king. There's no way this answer should come. Been praying for four months. He prays in the heat of the moment. And he's he's asking, remember, along with God's will. This is what God wants. And God does an amazing thing to answer this prayer. God was in this from the beginning to the end. He chose me and yep. put the burden on me. Absolutely. It's all God. All yep. the It absolutely is. And an obedient man that listens. Right. It is, absolutely. And so, so what we need to figure out is what is it that God wants us to be doing? Right? What is the work that he's called us to? And then how can we pray prayers similar to the way Nehemiah prayed? What's, what's the burden? What's the problem? What's God's will that he has clearly revealed that he wants done that's not being done? And I think if you, if you think about that in your life and you think about people in your life, there's so many circumstances that you can come up with. So then if that's the case, why aren't we more burdened about it and why are we praying about it more? Right? Why are we, why are we praying that, that God will do what he can do? Because the weird thing about this to think about is like we know that God is sovereign and God had this plan and, and, and all of the, the temple was going to, the wall was going to be rebuilt. But we also know that Nehemiah, he was the one that felt the burden. He is the one that made the decision to pray. He's the one that had to talk to the king. And so all along, it still, it still took Nehemiah's obedience in all of this. Right? It still took him having this, this faith and this attitude that God could use him and believing and trusting God for that. And there was a process because Nehemiah was interested when his brother came. Yeah. He was just interested. Yep. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Absolutely. And then he hears, and then he gets a burden. Yep. So, you know, God worked the process in Nehemiah. He did. Yep. Absolutely. And maybe, maybe for you, maybe it's like, hey, God, I, I didn't realize I should, I should have a burden for something and that there's something you want. And so help me to see that today. Maybe, like, I don't know where on that spectrum you are. Joanne, I think I saw. Nehemiah was also a very faithful employee. Yep. And a good worker. 
and he earned the respect of the king. Even though the king wasn't a Christian, non-Christians respect Christians who do a faithful job, and they're there, yep. and they go over and above. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Like, so when the king saw he was sad, he knew something was wrong. Yeah. And he cared about him because he was a good employee. Right. Yeah, so if Nehemiah was like always looking for time off and always always he was the guy that like called in sick as much as possible. He's like, Oh, how could I be happy when um there's a city over there that doesn't have gates? <laughs> He'd be like, Oh, you wanna go fishing? I see it. I see what's happening here. But you're right, I think that Nehemiah had such a great testimony. So good. Good. Any other f final thoughts or comments? Why don't we pray?